Good morning. It's good to see you this morning in person. Uh, the last time I had the privilege of preaching the Word, it was the, about a year and a half ago in March, maybe not quite a year and a half, but it was the first Sunday that we had all um, gone, back, gone home, and our first Sunday from home, and it was awkward standing up here um, preaching essentially to a camera and to a very few people in the room, and so you, you just can't understand how, how blessed I find it to be here in person with you all. Um, I was back there singing, and I had Elliot smiling at me, and, um, and then Remington coming and jumping into my arms. It's just that I'm you know, missing those, um, those, those times um, as, we, um, as we've had. It's just such a blessing to have that again. It's always a privilege as well to be up here um, preaching. So if you don't know me, um, my name is Aaron. I know most of you. I can see the faces, but there's a couple that I know I haven't met, um, and I always like to joke, I, I meet you multiple times before I, before I remember your name, so <laughs> always reintroduce yourself to me. Um, but uh, Pastor John's away today, um, and so we're going to take a little bit of a break from the book of Genesis. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, it is page 965 in the church Bible if you have that, um, and I'm going to read that chapter now. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also, may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find here in this passage. And Lord, I pray for the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit that 
because the words I speak this morning would not be mine, but that they would be empowered by your Spirit, that they would land upon the hearts of those who hear, and that as a result of hearing your word today, that we would be one step closer to being more like the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the benefits of preaching infrequently is that you oftentimes have a lot of time to meditate on the passage that you're going to preach on. And this is one of those passages, and I oftentimes find myself grateful for Pastor John, who um, every Sunday, week after week, um, pulls great depth out of passages um, of Scripture for us, um, and oftentimes with very few verses, or much fewer verses than what I'm preaching on this morning, um, but he's always got his three points ready for us every Sunday morning. And I hope if we all realize how blessed we are to have um, Pastor John um, teaching us so, so often. And so, yes, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a passage that I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last year. Um, it's transformed a lot about how I think about suffering, the gospel, and how the power of God is just simply so greatly displayed in the gospel, in suffering, in our weaknesses. We've heard a lot over the last year. 2020 was a tough year, wasn't it? Like, it really was. And maybe you're one of those people that's just tired of hearing that phrase. But I can promise you that I've heard a lot of people tell me how the last year has just been a uniquely difficult year for many people. Our society had a lot of turmoil going on, to it, uh, going on within it, and that challenged us in many ways. The political environment that we found ourselves in with different presidents and the different ideas around masks, or perhaps it was merely the future of the country that was weighing heavy upon your heart and mind. We were isolated from each other. We were conditioned to, to view each other as threats of a biological disease as opposed to a friend or a brother and sister in Christ. Our church went through a hard time. Many friendships were fractured. Many people still continue to to struggle with long-term diseases. We pray for them weekly. There's been many surgeries that have carried high risk. We've had a lot of spouses and parents, loved ones that have fallen sick, and some even have died. Some have experienced grief with their children or grandchildren. Oftentimes that's in, over the issue of their salvation, perhaps choices they're making in life, or it could simply be that the struggles they're having living in this broken world. Jobs have been at peril in their worst or perhaps even at their best, have just been harder because of the impacts of COVID. I've listened to story after story of how rough the last year has been on all of us. And suffering is a reality of the broken world we live in. It's a reality of others' sin, how it impacts us, a reality of our own sin and its impact on us and how it impacts others. And any time I find myself lamenting the broken world I live in, its impact on me, its impact on you, I oftentimes search for hope. There has to be hope within it all. And a hope that can enable me to endure, and if by some means would enable me to encourage those who experience the same thing. And I think Paul gives us such hope in this chapter of the Bible. Paul was a minister of the gospel, as he says, and as a minister of the gospel, he talks in this passage about how he suffered. But it's his reaction to that suffering that was unexpected, hard to even grasp in many ways. And so to set some more foundation, as you read through this chapter and as you, as you hear this, I don't want you to be tempted to read this passage and think that it doesn't apply to you. Paul is a minister of the gospel, yes. And it can be tempting to just simply view him as the rest of us, 
view him different as the rest of us and to not think that what he went through is similar to the things we go through. And in one sense, yes, he was different. His gifting was as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and none of us here in this room can claim that gifting. His gifts were different than ours. But each of us who are a follower of Jesus Christ are ministers of the gospel. Displaying the light of the gospel is not just the pastor's job. We've all been called to share the gospel with other people. And so while we all may not be like Paul, as he said to the Corinthians, each of us has gifts that defer according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And what 2 Corinthians 4 is all about is how those gifts are displayed through suffering, how the gospel is displayed in our weakness, how the power of the gospel belongs to God and not to us, and how God's grace is displayed on the canvas of our broken lives. And this portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I think, gives us great joy as we see the things that we rightly lament, but we see them as transient. And he shows us that our holding fast to the truth of the gospel is eternal, and it cannot be taken away. And so I have three main points for you to reflect on this morning. The first is Paul's mindset to ministry. The second is the light of the gospel. And the third is how the gospel light is displayed in human weakness. And so let's begin with Paul's mindset to ministry. So Paul starts off this, this passage, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, there's this eye-catching phrase, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Some translations say we don't give up. And here's Paul, through all these accusations, criticism, mockery, physical consequences, the weaknesses of the flesh, Paul is here saying, we don't lose heart, we don't give up, we will not act cowardly. And I have to ask the question, what can create this type of confidence in the face of the kind of adversity that he went through? I think the answer to that question is simple, and that is knowing the value of what you possess knowing the value of what you possess. If you think about it, right now, everything in our, in our world just seems like the price of everything is going up, right? I mean, I don't know where the talking heads are getting their data from about there is no inflation or perhaps it's temporary. Like every time we go to the store and buy something, it seems like it costs 10% more than it did the week before. Inflation is real, <laughs> at least it is in my household. Um, and one area that I've seen this, it's near and dear to my heart, is the price of wood. Um, and um, it's, it's, it, lumber has gone up crazy, right? But I had a, a cousin who built a workbench in his garage recently, and he posted a picture of it online, and, and he mused. He goes, it might have been cheaper to have built the top out of granite. And another friend posted a picture of a two-by-four, and he was asking $100 for these three two-by-fours that he had a picture of, and he said, no bartering. I know what I've got here. And so <laughs> I think his price was probably just about right these days. But when, when we know the value of the thing that we possess, we're confident. We're confident in talking about it. We're confident in asking for a, a price for that thing because we know the value of it and we know that it's a fair price. We're immovable even because we know what we got here. And this is the idea behind what Paul is saying with this phrase, we don't lose heart. He's confident in the value of what he has, the gospel. He's confident that the truth of the gospel is what he has. He knows what it's worth, and that is eternal life to all of those who believe. He says earlier in the book, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 
And this gives him confidence as he endured the suffering that he speaks about in verses 8 and 9, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. His confidence in the value and the truth of the gospel is also why he doesn't feel compelled to alter it. And he even understands that altering the gospel would undermine the truth of the gospel and make it meaningless. He talks about how he doesn't need to craft the message to make it more palatable to those who reject it. He doesn't need to change the message to be more man-centered, but he keeps it focused and centered on Christ and his glory. Paul knows that the gospel is not meant to merely make you feel better about yourself. And so he says, I refuse to tamper with God's word. He understands that tampering with the truth of the gospel is going to do nothing but raise a generation of Christians whose spiritual diet consists of nothing but candy, and they would be spiritually malnourished. And so we can learn a lot from Paul's mindset here. We can be bold because we possess a message of great value and that has great power. And we don't need to hold back parts that we don't want to offend people with, such as avoiding calling people sinners or establishing the fact with them that they stand under judgment before God because of their sin. We shouldn't feel compelled to focus only on the parts of the gospel that are more palatable, like God's love, which, without an understanding of his judgment because of our sin, doesn't mean as much. And we can be confident in mentioning Christ's name because we know that a Christless gospel is nothing but mere moralism and an exceedingly joyless life at that. So just like Paul says in verse 2, we simply need to share the open statement of the truth. Share the open statement of the truth. Don't be discouraged when you run into people that reject the gospel. They are not rejecting you. Just as Paul tells us here, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. He says in his first letter to the Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And later Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And earlier in this second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. And so Satan may be the god of this world, and he may be blinding the eyes of many, but know that it is only temporary. He only rules this age which is a judged and fallen age that is going to eventually come to nothing. <clears throat> as one commentator said as I was studying this, just because the, or the, the sun does not cease to be the sun just because the blind don't see it. We aren't responsible for the outcome, only to boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord. We aren't responsible for the outcome, only to display its light in these broken vessels that we live in. We once lived in darkness, and now the light of the gospel has illuminated our hearts. We were once lost in sin, but now the light of the gospel has illuminated our minds with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so up to this point, I've talked a lot about the light of the gospel. And so what do I mean by that phrase? What is the gospel? 
Well, I can tell you that it is a glorious message of forgiveness and an amazing display of God's love. But before I get to that more, I want to establish that not trusting in Christ, not believing this gospel, brings sure judgment in your life. The Bible makes it very clear that all men are sinful, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have gone astray. Every one of us has chosen their own way, either now or once, to, to insist on living a life apart from God. And we stood before God condemned. If someone does not trust in Christ, there will come a day when they will see Christ for who he truly is, a righteous judge. All will bow to the highly exalted Jesus. All will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle John describes Christ in the book of Revelation as one with eyes like flames of fire, called by the name of the Word of God, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He's referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All who are not found in Christ, trusting in Christ, will be destroyed by this righteous judge. They will stand before him and be judged, each according to the work that he has done. And found without righteousness, they will be cast into a lake of fire for all of eternity. It won't be a pretty end. Well, how does one avoid this end? By trusting in Christ. See, the gospel message is clear. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of all man, created each one of us in the image of him to know him. But we sinned and we cut ourselves off from him. And nothing that we can do is able to meet the righteous requirements that God has to restore what was broken by our sin. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, sent his son, Jesus, to come and save us from our sins. And by putting our faith in Christ, confessing him as Lord, believing that he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and that he rose again three days later, that we might have Christ's righteousness now stand on our behalf, that is what makes us saved. We are saved from sin by trusting in Christ's finished work on the, on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And what is great and what makes it even better is that the benefits don't end in just that initial act of salvation. And so for those of you trusting in Christ today, take a moment to recount with me some of the many benefits and blessings that we have in Christ as a result of his finished work. First, we are forgiven. He does not count iniquity against us because if God did, who of us could stand before him? When we are trusting in Christ, he does not deal with us according to our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We were dead in our trespasses, but God makes us alive together in him. Spiritually dead people being reborn to live a new life. These hearts of stone that we once had becoming hearts of flesh by his work. The Bible tells us as Christians that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are given all spiritual blessings in Christ. We are given the faith to trust in Christ, the gift of faith. Our old self is crucified it is no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. In the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who died 
and gave himself for us. You can say amen to any of these. I don't mind. <laughs> we, we are no longer bound by the law. This law that once condemned us, that none of us had any hope of obeying, this righteous requirement of the law that none of us could ever obtain, Christ fulfilled that on our behalf in his work on the cross. Good, amen. You can say amen to these. Christ loves us with a love that is so deep and so strong, it's hard for us to grasp the depth of that love. Some of us, it's hard for us to even accept that love. Dane Ortland, in the book Gentle and Lowly, you should really get a copy of that book and read it, he describes this depth of love as one in which Christ's heart is moved toward us in our sin. Think about that. While we sit broken over our sinfulness, lamenting it, feeling the shame of it, perhaps the regret of it, <coughs> we should know that Christ is moving toward you in love. He knows how you feel. He sympathizes with how you feel. He knows what that temptation is like. He experienced that temptation in infinitely greater ways than any other man did because at some point we all give in to the temptation. But he never did. He never did. He knows and he sees our sinfulness in these moments far than even we can understand. While we lament the sinfulness that is before us, Christ can see an infinitely greater measure of sinfulness in us. And you want to know what the amazing part of it all is? He still loves us. He still is drawn towards us. He's still sitting there and he is looking at us and he, he has this arm, it's like he has this arm around us and he's saying, I know what this is. I can fix this. It is, after all, what I came to do on the cross to save you from your sin. Christ tells us, or in the book of Hebrews, Christ, we are told that Christ saves us to the uttermost. There isn't anything that we can do that cannot be reached by the forgiveness and restoration of God. Amen? God's love for us is so deep. His desire to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden so great what does he do? He sends his only son. He sacrificed his only son. Christ humbled himself. He became man. He took on the form of man. He became the servant of men. He extended that humility to the point of death on the cross. Christ lays his life down for us. He alone laid it down. No one made him do it. He alone laid it down, and he alone could take it back up. We are no longer under any condemnation. Christ has become condemnation on our behalf. We were reflecting last week in Sunday school in the Hebrews class about how Christ sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. And as the wrath of God is poured out on sinners, Christ is sitting there, his work complete, saying, nope, that one's mine. My blood covers their sin. Christ is our advocate with the Father. He is the propitiation or the appeasement of God's wrath for our sins. We've been redeemed through his blood bought with the precious blood of Christ, and because of Christ's blood, his work on the cross, we are without blemish or spot. Paul tells the Philippians that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We cannot derail the plan of God. He holds us eternally secure in his hands. No one is able to snatch us from his hand. He sent the Spirit to seal us to provide a down payment for our salvation, to teach us Christ that we might have eternal life today. The Bible describes Christians as the workmanship of Christ. Jim prayed this in the pastoral prayer. Created in Christ for the sake of good works, which God had prepared before the foundation of the world that we would do, 
So sovereign is God in the plan of salvation that not only did he predestine us to salvation, he predestined the results of salvation that would be worked out in our life. We've been adopted as sons of God through Jesus Christ. We've received an inheritance in salvation that words cannot describe. And Peter describes this as living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just to name a few. (laughs) I could go on for hours of all the benefits the Word of God tells us we have in salvation. This, all right, this is the glorious light of the gospel. This is what we rejoice in. It's in these truths that our hearts cry out with hallelujahs and amens. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the truth that illuminated the darkness of our hearts. This is the treasure that is within the jars of clay that Paul mentions next. And so let's move on to verse 7. Paul says here, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so as we just talked about, this treasure Paul is referring to is the glorious light of the gospel that shines in our hearts, giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But why does Paul refer to us as jars of clay, though? Something to think about. And as I was meditating on this passage and putting this together, I remembered that there was a band once called Jars of Clay. And so I went and Googled them. I thought maybe I'd get a good illustration out of this, you know, like Pastor John does. But alas, my, uh, my lack of depth in musical genres and musical skills and whatnot defeated me. And I realized that only Pastor John can create such illustrations. And so we'll leave that to you, brother. But I did listen to a few of their songs wasn't for me. It's not the style of music that I care for. I'm a classical music guy. Um, but there's one thing I found unfortunate. After reading a few of the things that they've said over the years about why they don't talk more directly about the gospel and their music, I was kind of saddened because it felt to me like they missed the whole point of this passage and all they found was a trendy name for their band. See, the idea of jars of clay here is fundamental to understanding the contrast and the joy that we receive from this passage. In Paul's day, jars of clay were a utilitarian item. They stored food, water, valuables in them. Um, Jars of clay were their toilets and wash basins. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the Bible, were stored in these jars of clay. These jars were easily broken. They weren't necessarily beautiful. They were chipped. They filled the cracks with wax. And here's Paul comparing us to these jars of clay. And I think that is fitting because we are broken. We suffer weaknesses. We can be easily discouraged. And we weren't necessarily beautiful, wise, or powerful, or of noble birth. In Paul's first letter to these Corinthians, he mentions that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does he do this? Well, he says right there in verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The gospel's impact in our lives and in the lives of others has absolutely nothing to do with us. It is God working in us. And in that I find great joy. 
I'm this broken, weak, struggling sinner. I'm redeemed by God's great love and grace, displaying the light of the gospel to the glory of God. I had nothing to do with the plan. It was all God, and he allows by his great kindness me to be used this jar of clay to display his power and his work. What a privilege. The humble before God recognize this weakness, this brokenness, this lack of capacity to overcome what sin has destroyed in our lives. We're a lot like a video that I saw somebody post online a few months ago. It was a, um, a sheep that had fallen into a ditch. It was made by one of those trenching machines, and this sheep was helpless. It was there wedged in between the walls of the, of the, of the ditch. Um, it, it, it was just crying. It was in pain, um, and it, it would have died had nobody come along to help it. And a young man comes along, and he pulls this sheep out of the ditch by its hind legs, and, and when it gets out, the sheep kind of looks back at the young man, like almost with this look of thankfulness, and then it runs off, leaps for joy, right back into the ditch. <laughs> this is kind of how it feels, though. That was the caption on the, on, on the post. And the poster was right with that caption because this is exactly what we need from Christ in our salvation, a constant and persistent rescue from the impacts of sin in our lives. We are jars of clay. The human life and body they are created in the image of God, and we are valuable and valued in the eyes of God. It's, it's his desire to see that flesh restored to what it was originally before sin came along and corrupted it. But it's that sin that oftentimes makes us look more like the broken cookie jar that we destroyed when we were a kid stealing the cookies than some exquisitely crafted vase that has gold inlay. We are beset with weakness. We often contradict the gospel with our sinful desires. We are jars of clay. The humble before God recognize this weakness. We acknowledge that we oftentimes lose sight of the gospel and, like, and we act like the Galatians, so quickly deserting him who called us in the grace of Christ to turn to a different gospel. We struggle to grasp the full reality of God's love in our life, what he's done for us on the cross. We feel at times that we don't even deserve that love. And what do we do? We easily slip back into a non-gospel and begin to live by works, trying to please him through our actions and our efforts. I've done this before, and I find that as I get older and my grasp on the gospel becomes clearer, I'm still fighting the evil one's deceit in my life, which only gets trickier. At times we lose sight of the glory and light of the gospel by integrating worldly truths into the gospel. We are jars of clay. Now the point here is not to disparage Christians as the bearers of the gospel message. But it is in this weakness that the power of the gospel, its truth, its light, its transforming ability and restorative ability is proven to not be in us, but wholly and completely in God alone. The point here is not to make us feel worthless, but to boast in our weakness, because we recognize that in that weakness, the light of the gospel is more gloriously and more brightly displayed. Paul never hid his weaknesses. We just said that verse earlier. He boasted in his weaknesses. He never hid these weaknesses. He exposed them over and over again because he knew that by displaying these weaknesses, there could never be any doubt or credit given to him for what God had done in his ministry. And he was ever more joyful knowing that God would use him through his weaknesses to work in others' lives 
to display the light of the gospel and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so here's Paul in verses 8 and 9 talking about his weaknesses. He was this afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and stricken man. The men and women that traveled with him experienced the same things. Elsewhere in Paul's letters, we get this picture of a man who's just an unseemly guy, weak, disreputable, hungry, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless, an easily dismissed man. He's not exactly a ringing endorsement for the advantages of becoming a Christian. See, people typically are drawn to those who are confident, strong, regal, honorable, wealthy. That's who we want to follow. But those who understand the light of the gospel, they recognize that those worldly ideas of value are transient. They don't last. Those who understand the light of the gospel, they see this great treasure that exists within these jars of clay. They know that this gospel is eternal and that it cannot be taken away like those other transient things. See, this is the thrust of the passage. Finding joy in knowing that God is working through you in spite of the many weaknesses and struggles that you have before you. It's mind-blowing, really. I find this hard to grasp. See, my natural mind constantly is pulling me towards this idea that I'm only useful to God once I finally get my act straight. And I figure out how to work 16-hour days for Jesus without grumbling, without finding myself exhausted, with this perfect joy, regardless of any criticism, without any of the sinful tendencies that I've struggled with for the last 45 years, then and only then will God use me. But nothing can be further from the truth, amen? Like, I have this treasure in this jar of clay. You have this treasure in your jar of clay. And what Paul's mindset here is what enables him to say that he is afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Paul was human like the rest of us. I'm sure he mourned at times. I'm confident that he lamented the things that were occurring in his life. When we read the Psalms, say one with 20 verses, The psalmist we oftentimes find is lamenting for the first 18 verses. And then only after that does he get to the last two verses where he finds joy in some eternal truth of God's word or in in God's character or in the aspect of salvation. It's human to lament. Don't feel bad if you're still in the first 18 verses. However, It is the gospel, our focusing on these glorious truths that we find written in the word of God that enables us to hold on to the final two verses of that psalm. It was this treasure that Paul had within him that enabled him not to be crushed, driven to despair, not feel forsaken, not be destroyed by all the suffering he was enduring. It was this gospel treasure and truth that Paul knew, understood, and meditated on frequently that enabled him to find joy in that suffering. He understood that in the death of his earthly body, the life of Jesus was manifested. He found great joy that in the death which was at work in him, he was able to see life in those that he loved and served. I've found great comfort in this passage over the last year. I've lamented many things, the loss of good friends, the loss of a job that I loved, 
the reality of the frailty of life by health issues and those that I love, the anxiety that I experienced fighting off COVID for two weeks with only enough strength to lie in a bed. I found that there was this false sense of security that had creeped into my heart as these realities unfolded. There were times that I felt despair and times that I felt defeated or crushed. But I'd come back and I'd read this passage of Scripture and I found such deep hope and comfort knowing that God was using these events to refine me. And I find myself talking to you today having gone through a spiritual surgery by God where he drew me to repent of my desire for many things in this world and to long and desire for the things of God and the glorious light of the gospel more. And I know even now I'm still very imperfect in those desires. In this spiritual surgery that I'm talking about, the Lord showed me such deep truths about his love for me that the phrase, nothing can separate us from the love of God, has an entirely new dimension to me in these chambers of my heart. This truth that I found in this passage was a hope that I clung to, that through all the pain that there would come a day when I would look back and see the light of the gospel at work in my life and in the life of those around me, that by God's grace there would come a day when there was this gospel light gloriously displayed through me, this jar of clay to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This hope is what I saw over and over again in the final six verses of this chapter. Through all the loss, illness, persecution, death that we experience in this life, through all the tears of mourning and lament that we experience through those moments of loss, illness, persecution, death, through all the weakness of our flesh, the many times we find ourselves back in the trench bleeding for our Savior to come rescue us, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We draw hope and comfort that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God is working in and through us to draw glory to himself through our displaying the light of the gospel, even though we're jars of clay. Verse 17 and 18 are hard verses. I had to struggle with these for some time. Look at what Paul says here. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I really had to think about what this verse means. Because I find that when I'm hurting, the last thing I want is somebody to quote this verse to me. Or perhaps it's more popular sibling, Romans 8.28, which Bobby shared earlier. Perhaps it's because of just my my broken and sinful heart. Um, Perhaps it's simply because I just need you to hurt with me first. But that said, I still find great comfort in this verse. I find great comfort in this verse. Because I know the pain that I feel, I know the pain that you feel is real. The pain that we feel with loss, the pain that we feel with the fear of loss. These emotions are deeply rooted in our being. And I don't know about you, but they scare me. I don't know what to do with them at times. I don't know what the right thing to do with these emotions at times, but I know they're real, and I know they're not wrong to have. We see Jesus and the psalmist feeling these types of emotions over and over again because of the brokenness that sin brings into this world. The depth of this pain is very real, but it's confronted with this statement in Scripture this light and momentary affliction. I don't know about you, but it certainly doesn't feel light and momentary at times, does it? 
It's painful. It's heavy. It's waiting. My broken heart at times cries out, how can this possibly be good? There are times that I cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? As I wait for answers that are vexing my soul. But it is this weight that we feel that makes this verse place so much hope and joy in our hearts. As heavy as some of these things can be in our lives, we have this this scriptural truth staring us down in our face, telling us that in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in Christ's kingdom, this heavy heart, this pain, this suffering is going to feel light and momentary. In the end, it will feel light and momentary. And it's the depth of what we feel that I think enables us to understand the greatness of what awaits us in the kingdom of God. It is beyond all comparison. If we get to this place of hope by not looking to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Pastor John has told me often, hold the blessings of this life with a loose hand. He's right in that counsel. The blessings of this life, while good gifts from the, our Father in heaven above are always in the end transient, they can be taken away by man or by God. The loss of them is going to cause our rightful lament, but the hope in what's to come, the blessings that we already have in Christ, the blessings that are going to be made complete when we are with Christ face to face, this focus on the treasure of the gospel, this is eternal. It can never be taken away. And that should occupy our minds. And when it does, it gives us great joy, even amidst the morning. Let's pray. Father, there's so much truth in this passage, and saying it is easier than living it. All of us know that. And Lord, I just pray that you would make this real to us. Help us to see that you have given this great treasure. Help us to know and understand ways and depths and on the width and the height of all of what the gospel means to us in our lives. Help us to continue to learn it and to continue to treasure and value and seek it more. And Lord, I pray that that would give us boldness with those we share the gospel to, but also, Lord, I pray that no matter what occurs in our life, that even through our lament, even through our tears, even through our mourning, we are able to say we have great joy because we know that you are our God, and that you love us, and that you're in control. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.